This morning is uh, Sunday. It is uh, February 20th. It is my mother's birthday today. She looks good for 40, doesn't she? Yeah, uh, it's a short gestational period that she had when she was six, and I'm here. You know? <laughs> there, I got both of our ages wrong now. <laughs> uh, it's good to celebrate monumental achievements in our lives, you know, uh, to be able to look back and see what God has done for us. Uh, this morning, we are going to preach on what it is to be fully satisfied. Okay? Now, that might sound like a selfish message. Uh, I promise it is not. This is not how how to get minds. <laughs> this message is going to teach us good, awesome, foundational Christian living. And I, I want to tell you, as Brandon spoke Wednesday, who heard that? Raise your hand if you heard that. Okay, that's awesome. If you're not able to be here on Wednesdays, then uh, listen to them online. The messages coming out of this body are much, much better than the messages you're hearing on Sunday morning. And that's good. That's by design. It's what God's doing in our midst. The congregation is rising up to be what God has called it. Each one with a song, hymn, word, instruction for each other. But as he spoke, his message was called, Don't Fight for the Right. Now, I got one of those crazy minds that chases tangents. Somebody this week told me I was ADD. Uh, in a loving kind of way. Uh, when he said, don't fight for your right, uh, I don't know who in here is in that age group, but I thought of the Beastie Boys immediately. Uh, yeah, but Keith's shaking his head. He understands. That was, um, that was a 1986 album, Licensed to Ill. <laughs> yeah, how about that? I shouldn't know that kind of thing, but I... I wasn't born again from birth, right? <laughs> so, and I also loved the No Sleep Till Brooklyn. I didn't know what any of the songs meant, but I, I loved them. And um, Brandon was not even born until 1988. It, yeah. So, so the Beastie Boys sang that two years before he was born, and yet uh, he, he preached their title. Oh, wow. Things that we do, no matter whether good or bad, are going to leave a legacy of some kind. The things that a man or woman does in their life, or even does not do, is going to teach the world something. A father that you never met taught you something. Whether you know it or not, that father that you never met left you with some kind of teaching, some kind of impression on you. So well, how could that be? Well, it might be a big absence. It might be a void. A father that you talk to every day and he talked harshly to you taught you something. Father that was loving taught you something. We all impart something to the people around us. It could be summarized as heavenly or hellish. If we're thinking about our actions and wondering whether or not we're extending the kingdom of heaven into people's lives or we're extending a hellish principle into people's lives, is what you're doing advancing God's order, His peace, His harmony? Or is what you're doing continuing the chaos that He brought the world out of. What the Jews call tohu vavohu. That desolation and darkness and waste. We need to be about repairing the earth. Amen? Amen. So Brandon covered a proverb. And I'm also going to cover some proverbs. Uh, turn with me to Proverbs 13.4. Is the proverb that he... Uh, one of the proverbs that he covered in his message. And I believe as he... Uh, covered it. The Lord was sharing something with the church that uh, I got a further revelation on today and I want to cover with you. <laughs> so Proverbs 13.4 The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent 
are fully satisfied. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. If you're taking notes, this first section is going to be called fully satisfied. Later on, maybe much later in the message, there'll be a guarded, not overthrown. And then lastly, there'll be wealth. In each one of these sections, we're going to examine something about the cross, about salvation, about how we walk in the foundational elements of our faith. In this first one where we're talking about fully satisfied, I want to tell you that when it says the sluggard craves and gets nothing, we're talking about idle cravings. We're talking about those kind of cravings that are, well, I, I want to go to heaven. I wish I weren't an addict. You know, I would like to be right with God, but are not followed with action. James calls this a kind of faith that cannot save you, and religion that is worthless, because it craves and it wants, but it does not do anything. Uh, I, I know some of you that know me well will be shocked to hear this, but my truck broke down. And uh, I usually fix it. Uh, and in fact, a lot of you have pitched in and helped me many times to fix it. But the last time I had to replace the ball joints uh, upper and lower on, on one side, it was a two-day project that involved the cutting torch, and it, it was really unpleasant. And a shop gave me an excellent quote. I mean, just right above what the parts actually cost. I, I truthfully think they made a mistake, but I was not too proud to, uh, to accept their offer. I spent three hours talking to them about Christianity is when your faith has feet. They took everybody out of the service base and brought them into the lobby because they were shocked that there was a church with, what do we got, 70 people, 60 people? I mean, I guess it depends on the Sunday. Some number of people, but a little church by most people's standards that is interested in going to India, that regularly wants to go feed people in Mexico, that is looking for a way practically to express God's love. They all go to very well-established churches. Isn't that interesting? Not one person in those service bays didn't claim to go to church. But you could see they had not experienced the kind of Christianity that should be commonplace. You could see it in their eyes. And they hungered for it. Saints, the world is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Yeah. They're waiting for anyone who will not just desire the right things, but is willing to be diligent in seeking after doing the right things. Yeah. Reinhard Bonker is a famous German evangelist. He says, you pray for the will of God and I will run you over from behind doing the will of God. We need to be faithful to what He has already shown us. My own testimony is that I had idle cravings. Prior to a certain night in 1993, I wanted to stop cursing. I wanted to stop sexual impurity. I wanted to be free from violence. I went to church every week because my parents made me go to church every week. Uh, I agreed with everything that was being said from the pulpit. I never disagreed with a message that I can remember. I won Bible awards in school during that time period because I could remember the things that I was taught. But they were idle cravings. They were do-nothing Christianity. I had learned to agree to all of the right things and do none of them. And so what it left me was with a sense that such and such is wrong. It's sin. And I should stop it. 
but I never did. It left me with the innate knowledge that something needed to change, but no power to change it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands in here if that message is resonating with you, but let me tell you, I'm your pastor, so I know how much it resonates. Those areas where you go, I'm so sorry, Lord. I don't ever want to do that again. And you fully expect to do it again tomorrow. Right? Now, this is a difficult place to be in Christianity because on one side of the spectrum, you have people just say, hey, hey, in Christ is all forgiven. Just move on. Even though it's repetitious. On the other side of the scenario, you'll have this attitude that is um, not just move on, but you can't be saved in sin. You can't be saved and have a habitual sin. I lean that way most of the time. I mean, you'll hear that from me a lot. The reality is we are torn between those very principles. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling. You can be sure that you're His, but we need to hear this word. My own testimony that I was being dominated by sin. Knowing who Jesus was, saying all of the right things, but sin having dominion over me was that He visited me during a moment. And when He did, I suddenly had victory in areas I had never been able to get victory in before. Now some of them were immediate. I want to tell you, a filthy tongue left me immediately. What, there was a time in my life I was doing push-ups every time I cursed. Right? I could do hundreds of push-ups. But I could not tame my tongue. The moment that His power filled the room and I encountered Him in a sacrificial kind of way, that left me. Other things did not leave me. They've been a daily struggle. A daily fight. Is there anybody in here that can nod your head to a daily fight? A struggle with sin? A Romans 7 kind of... The very things I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. And the things that I want to do, that's what I can't find how how to do. Can you relate to that at all? I think that in large part we have so simplified this struggle through our religious... uh, Structure that we have just put it all into neat categories. And the reality is, you were meant to struggle in this because it made you dependent upon Him and the victory that He gives. Amen. Amen. That's right. Now, Romans 6 acknowledges this. I want to tell you the second half of that Proverbs, though. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. There is something that we need to be diligent in. And I want to tell you, it is not the strength of your own arm that says, by willpower, I will never do this again. I will set my will on it and I will never do it again. Willpower is a component, but it's the weakest of the components. Can you will yourself not to have diarrhea? Anybody in here that holy? Okay, well, I'm not that holy either. You set your will on it all the time, but your flesh does have a voice, doesn't it? And you reach limits. People find the limits of their flesh all of the time. You ever been on a roller coaster next to somebody that... They didn't want to do that. They didn't get on that roller coaster and say, today I think I'll embarrass myself. Maybe it'll get on YouTube before the whole world. (laughs) Through your flesh, you will never control. Through your your willpower, you will never control your flesh. God has given us a method to control our flesh. But it is not through your will alone, though it involves your will. Turn with me to Romans 5. We have to be diligent in the battle to master sin at the cross of Jesus. 
Now, when we say something like that, that's such religious language, right? At the cross of Jesus. We've heard about the cross of Jesus for 2,000 years so we can forget what it means. I mean, after all, there could be a pretty cross in your church. How many of you have on a golden cross right now or a silver cross somewhere? Just a couple of you, right? Isn't it interesting? That, and I'm not picking on you, okay? I have them too. They're in my house. My wife has them. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years after an event, what was bloody, what was gory, what was so horrendous that a man was disfigured beyond the appearance of a human being has become jewelry for us? Uh, uh, somebody told me one time when they came in here, there's no cross in your church. You can't have a church without a cross. Really? Well, who would you like to hang on it? Would you like blood dripping on it? What is it that you like? Because it was an execution stake. It was a place of capital punishment. Do you want an electric chair in your house? Anybody want to wear an electric chair around your neck? I'm not chastising anybody for wearing a cross, okay? For a lot of people, this is a very personal token of a, of a time in their life when they first encountered something that was gory, something that was harsh, and for them it became beautiful. I get that. But I want to tell you, most people are not quite that deep. Okay? Most people, I mean, in the 80s, all the musicians hung them from one ear. Anybody ever see Lost Boys? Okay, yeah. Of course you did. They were Lost Boys. Alright, uh, Romans 5. Pick up with me in verse 20. We let the Word teach what I failing to say. The law was added so that trespass might increase. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Let's start with that. The law was added. I don't want to argue with you today about the function of the Mosaic Law, but I do want to say this. Anytime you have something that increases your awareness of what is right and wrong, i.e., I was a kid in church all of the time, sin increases. Why does it increase? It increases because you know the good that you should do and you do not do it, and James 4, James 4 17 says that is sin. When you know the good that you should do and do not do it. Well, how can I crave to do something and don't actually do it? Isn't that kind of the magic question? Nolan, is that a question? Brandon, is that a question? CJ? Yeah, all of us know exactly what this is like. <laughs> now, you might be able to look at other people's lives and go, I don't know how they can't get victory in that area. But what happens when the Word is held up before your life? How strict do you want to be? before this entire group. Because there is a day when we will stand before everyone and hear this phrase, we will know even as we are known. That's what the Bible says. Everyone will be judged based on the quality of their work and will be rewarded according to their deeds, whether good or bad. Christians are no exception from that. That's a doctrinal lie. All you got to do is read the book of 2 Corinthians. And it teaches it plainly. know what it is to struggle. So how then do we find victory? Is it to set our will and say, I will never do that again. I'm just not going to do it. How many people have ever put those rubber bands on their wrists to remind them of something? Right? Or been in 12 steps. Right? I, I, I have never seen a program that does this. A program that wins. A program that gets it right. Where sin increased all the more, as people became aware of God's requirements more and more and more, they didn't keep them. But grace 
increased all the more. Now, when you've heard of grace, over and over and over, you hear preachers say, it's unmerited favor with the Lord, right? New Unger's Bible Dictionary defines it that way, and I love it. It's, a, it's in my library back there, or rather your library. I give those books to you because I hope you'll read them. Okay? You say, oh, it's unmerited favor. So how do we translate grace most of the time? Well, I deserve a spanking, and I didn't get one. <laughs> right? I did this bad, and Jesus took that for me. Right? That's usually how we think of grace. So, to us, grace has become a kind of license for immorality. Grace is, well, you deserve to be punished for this, but there'll be no punishment. That's how we see grace. When the grace of God appeared, did it purchase a people and wipe away sin? Of course. But grace was when that power showed up for the very first time that you did not have to do that thing that you did not want to do. Grace is the victory that you could not earn. Grace is victorious power in the resurrection and power of Jesus. It started on a cross and finished with an empty grave. Grace is victory that you could never have earned on yourself. Grace is not simply, well, I earned 13 demerits this week and Jesus took all of my demerits. Well, what good does that do if you have 23 demerits the next week? And 44 the next? And 200 the next. And then you end up in these ridiculous discussions like can I rape, murder, pillage, kill, cut off heads and arms, pull toenails out, and still go to heaven. You never see a discussion like that in the Bible. You go back and read what uh, Peter said to Simon in Acts. Pray and perhaps God will forgive you for having such a wicked thought in your heart. Grace was never cheap. It was never greasy. Grace was what you were dependent upon. Lord, here is my weakness. Here is where I'm failing you. I need to nail it to the cross with you. And I need your resurrection power to stand up and walk away from this. Friends, Jesus went to the cross a single time. One time, once for all. But you're supposed to go to the cross every day. In fact, you're supposed to carry it with you. It is supposed to be with you at all times, not as a piece of jewelry. It's supposed to be with you all of the time because at any moment you're supposed to say, that desire I'm having, it is not of you and I know that. Mighty God, look, I'm going to fall on my knees before you help me. Help me. I don't want to do this. I'm giving you that flesh right now that it might be nailed with you, that it might die. Because when I die in you, sin no longer has mastery. Amen over me. Lord, let me rise up from this place in Your power. We're always asking God for more and He's already said, I've given, I've given, I've given. He's put it in you. What you're asking Him in that moment is, Lord, show me how to live to that which is eternal. Show me how to have Your power work in my life. Power is not to get people out of wheelchairs. That is just a result. Power is to get you out of being mastered by sin. Diligence. The cravings of the sluggard get nothing. The desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Victory over sin comes one way. Diligently going to a cross. Listen to how he goes on to say it. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I merited victory. 
So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness or right standing to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The goal of Christianity is not to go to heaven. This is a 21st century lie. Actually, it's been going on since the mid-1800s. It's wrong. Well, believe on Jesus so you can go to heaven. That is not the goal. In fact, when Jesus prayed, He said, Thy kingdom come! The Psalms say that we will inherit the earth. The Beatitudes say it as well. Our goal is not to leave and go to heaven. Our goal is that through the mystery of the cross, we might find power to live in a heavenly way as He sets up His kingdom that is there now, starting inside of us on the entire earth. That is the goal of Christianity. And it culminates in the finished struggle with your flesh, a resurrected body that cannot sin. This is what Christianity looks like. It's why the the apostles preached over and over and over the power of the resurrection. And in Jesus, our resurrection. But today when we hear the cross, what we hear is that you need to come and give a sinner's prayer. And then we excuse ourselves from teaching and say, if it was really real, then they'll be that way always. If it wasn't real, even if it takes ten years to show that it wasn't real, When they leave, they were never a part of us. Friends, no warfare works that way. No warfare works that way. In war, and make no mistake, kingdom is clashing against kingdom. Even in your thoughts right now, kingdom is clashing against kingdom. Light against darkness. There are casualties. I've walked long enough to see my friends fall at my side. We do not have a single problem that the grace of God at the cross cannot give you victory in. Not a single one. But is it the first place we run? Do we see it as a starting line way back there? Or do we see it as an ever-present thing in our life? We are supposed to wake up every day and revisit the cross. Every day. Throughout the day, in every situation, we are supposed to revisit not just a bloody sacrifice that was a substitute for you, but your union with that. You're joining Him in that. Lord, I'm giving you some more ugliness right now to be nailed right there alongside you because I can't let it control me. I need your power over it. This is not a new message. Not at all. It's not a new message even from the first century. Is this not exactly what God told Cain? Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. You know what the only right answer to that was? Picture that you're Cain. You have no idea who Jesus is. You don't know about the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You have not heard about the resurrection power of the Gospel. You have not seen the the miraculous working of Jesus. You're Cain. What is the only right answer to that? Help me, Lord. I could never do this on my own. If it's left up to me, I'm going to kill Abel tomorrow. Your help, I can do anything. This is the place where we find unmerited victory. You didn't earn it. God simply says, because you asked and I love you, here it is. I know what it is to be a Christian and dominated by sin. I'm ashamed of that, but I know what it is. And yet that is not my state today. But I have spent periods of my life 
struggling against sin and finding no victory. Working to not be covered in shame because of it. Trying to figure out how to bring it into the light and receive help from my brothers, even though it was humiliating. I know what it is. The moment that He touches me, it goes away. Didn't do anything different. That kind of thinking, though, produces this next statement. But if I didn't do anything different, he gave me the victory. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Look at this next phrase. By no means. Now, that is a dumbed-down translation if there has ever been one. This is written in Greek, but I believe the original was in Hebrew because the man who is writing it is a master of the Hebrew language. He prayed in Hebrew. He read Hebrew. Hebrew is how he talked to his friends. So I think when he wrote this letter, he probably wrote it in Hebrew. And what we have is a copy that is in Greek because it went out to the world. But in any case, whether in Greek or Hebrew, this word doesn't mean just by no means. In Hebrew, it's ha-halal. C-H-A-L-I-L-A-H. Ha-halal. It's all in the back of your throat. <laughs> there, I said it. Now watch this. It means that would be the thing we're speaking of that is would be a profanity. It's like saying what you're suggesting is the same as cursing. He uses it over and over and over but it's always about a misuse of God's grace and God's law. He uses it in the book of Romans I think ten times. Those of you that have notes from Romans can go back and look. The idea that we would sin because there is grace was so... In fact, what one Bible dictionary said about it, it's it's the complete word study of the Old Testament. Speaking of that word, you can take the Greek word, look, see what the Hebrew is behind it, and find out its definition. It says, there is no stronger negative term available to a Hebrew-speaking person. Alright, you're getting the picture here? Mm -hmm. One translation says, heavens forbid... (laughs) Maybe in 1940, but not today. I mean, there are stronger ways that people say things today. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Ho, hello. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We don't have to argue about methods of baptism here. In fact, some will point out there's no water mentioned. This is because we're speaking of something more than being dunked in water or sprinkled if you like. What we're talking about is a union, a connection with Messiah. In the moment of your struggle and sin, you are connecting with His crucifixion for your sin. Letting it be crucified. Letting your flesh be nailed with His flesh to the cross. That you might be credited with His resurrection power as He comes out of the grave. This is where all victory over sin is found. There is no such thing as you simply will decide not to. I don't know whether any of you have ever dealt with what the world calls addictions. I'm a pastor. I get to deal with a lot of them. In our families, 
There have been a lot of them. I want to tell you the most addictive thing in the world is your own flesh, not cocaine, not heroin. The most addictive thing in the world is your own flesh. It is self-intoxication. It will trick you into thinking that you can sin and grace will increase and God is just happy with you the way that you are. When what He wants of us is to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Him. Brother Mike, get good about talking about our cross and not Jesus. You're not dying for the sins of the world. You're dying in that moment with Messiah to your sin. Not everyone else's. Yours. Very personal. You know, we say that Jesus was crucified for the whole world. That, that feels so much better and so much easier than saying He's crucified for my sin. Now name Him. He's crucified for my fit of rage. He's crucified for my lust. He's crucified for my greed. It is very personal in that way. What does He ask of you? You join Him in that crucifixion. Join with His work. When you take communion, that's what you're doing. It's what you're doing in a very spiritual sort of way. You're commemorating not just what He did, but you are joining Him in a covenant like a marriage saying our faith will be the same. You were crucified because of my sin, not yours. And so now I am crucifying this sinful desire with you. That means that all punishment for that fell upon Jesus in that act that you were united with Him. But you also then received His victory. We've made this so cheap. We've made it so easy. We've made it so sloppy that people say it and they have never experienced it. Friends, if you never experienced a day in your life where something simply, by the grace of God, you had victory over, I'm not sure you're born again. Okay. And if I'm not sure and God made me your pastor, you need to go look into the Word and ask. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. Did you see the if then? If you were united with Him, now, is there any other way to say united? When a, when, when a Jew wanted to say, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word was debak. meant <coughs> super good. In fact, when the modern Hebrews had to figure out words for things that didn't exist in the Bible, like airplane-like, Bagel. Like things that did not exist in the Bible. They had to borrow Bible terms and expand upon them. In the English language, there's some four or five hundred thousand words that are not technical. That that are like not even industry jargon, just words in a dictionary. In the Hebrew language it's it's like seven thousand. So each word has to be packed full of meaning. We're supposed to be super glued to Jesus on that cross. I don't carry around a crucifix. And when people do, it bothers me. I'm just going to be honest. If you're not dealing with vampires and werewolves, keep your crucifixes away from me. <laughs> to me, it looks like a fishing lure. I, I, I don't even see that as Jesus. He is not on that cross anymore. But you are supposed to be. 
you're supposed to be carrying it with you. He's resurrected at the right hand, and he took you there, but he told you, crucify yourself daily. People misunderstood this teaching in the Philippines. They actually nailed themselves to crosses. What good would that accomplish? Now, it's funny. They use surgical steel, and they disinfect it. For, for $6 in 1997, I was offered by a Muslim the chance to carry a cross down the Via del Rosa. How laughable. How, this is almost mocking what Jesus did. These petty stainless steel nails and carrying some wooden slats down the road are the beginning of what he did for us. And truthfully, it was so much gore, more glory, so much more gruesome. And what is he asking? He's asking that you unite in those sinful moments with him in that state. That you might be given his victory. All of a sudden, sin is not so appealing, is it? If, if to be angry with your wife, what it took was to watch Matthew and I beaten to death in this parking lot, how entitled to your feeling of anger do you think you would feel? Probably it's not worth the cost, is it? If you had to watch the scourging scene of the Passion of Christ every time you had a wicked thought, I think you'd have fewer wicked thoughts. This is what it means to carry the cross daily. It's what it means to go to the cross regularly. I think very often our counseling, our talking with people, is trying to get them to get a victory that we cannot give them and they cannot earn on their own. It comes via a very personal relationship with Jesus. Church structure will not give you that. Growing up in church might even hurt you from receiving it. Especially some of the churches your people grew up in. It makes us lukewarm. It makes lukewarm believers who have been inoculated from real Christianity by receiving enough weak and dead religion to have been inoculated, hardened against the truth because they think they already have it. That's right. What we're looking for, saints, in you, what we're trying to encourage, is it brokenness before the Lord? Yes. Psalm 51.17 says, A broken spirit and a contrite heart our God will not despise. Now we've heard that all of our lives, right? Who's heard that? We can sing about it, creating me a clean heart. God, when have you ever taken the time to consider what the word contrite meant? I mean, do you use that regularly? Do you go to the store and say, Ah, oh, there was no candy bar, Judah. I was awful contrite. <laughs> Probably not. This is not a part of our speech. So what does it mean? In Hebrew, one of the possible definitions is collapsed or deflated. How many times has your heart been collapsed and deflated before God because of what you filled the very center of your being with? Desires, passions, lust for something that He didn't want for you. And so in His presence, you let it collapse on itself and deflate. Said, fill me with the right thing. Yes. Come on now. You've never been so sure you were right, you were ready to square off with somebody. <laughs> Y'all must come from a different place than I can agree. But the Lord begins to deal with you, and you say, You're right, Lord. Yes. I don't want this. Lord, let it deflate in me. Let it be crucified this moment that I might receive your life. Then you offer a right sacrifice before God. You do what He tells you to do. Some of you young men need to hit your computers with a hammer, a sledgehammer, and call it an offer. Say, 
some of you ladies might need to turn off days of our lives. Our lives are not that interesting anyway. <laughs> Facebook might need to take a back seat to his book. And I'm not just being trite. I'm not, I'm not just trying to have cute preacher language here. I'm telling you that to be crucified with Christ involves the denial of self. Matthew 16 and 24 says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you're going to follow Jesus, it involves the collapsing and deflating of whatever your heart is filled with that he might fill you with his power. I'm still in Romans 6. I haven't even gotten to the scripture I wanted to read to you yet. If we have been united, 6-5, if we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. If, if, if. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be... Come on, say it now! Done away with! This does not sound like it has to be right there with you dominating you. It can be crucified once for all. You can put down an issue never to pick it up again because you maintain diligently the victory that He has given you. But you have to get it first. I told you I was delivered from filthy tongue immediately. I was not delivered from anger immediately. (laughs) Jen's here. I can't lie. But i got to tell you, as I drag that filthy, stinking, nasty, diseased stuff before the cross, I see victory over longer and longer periods with it. Because I don't take it like being in union with my Messiah. I don't take His power inside of me to be of little or no effect. I no longer believe I can't control it. I no longer believe that I couldn't help it. I no longer believe... How about this phrase? You made me feel... No, nobody does that to me anymore. Now the Messiah is inside of me. My flesh and my desires have been done away with so that the life that I live, I live only to Him. Have you ever considered that that thing that Microsoft put out there is called Windows? I wonder if it really were a window like that one how much time you would spend looking in other people's windows. thing you're clicking on is called a mouse. Dirty rodent. And yet we've all just accepted it all right in our house. Well, it got quiet as a mouse in here when we start talking about computer holding this house. Friends, there are some struggles that can only be won at the cross and it requires you to hate what is evil and love what is good. If our recent history has not taught us how important purity is in the walk of a believer, you need to know that men and women die every day, even though they're still walking around. Die every day from committing sins in the privacy of their own homes that no one knows about. Some are not here with us for no other reason than that. Not just one or two. Our King wants you holy. And your union with Him will produce holiness, but you have to be in union with Him. 
A man or woman told me they were married, but they don't see each other but twice a year. I would call that dating, no matter what the ring on their finger says. Sometimes, some of you are saying you were married to Messiah, you're in union with Him, but you're never with Him alone. You're only with Him in a big group. Truthfully, we're all trying to stir up your passion for Him. If Matthew only showed affection to Cassidy, if we were all around encouraging him, you can do it, Matthew, you can do it. <laughs> what kind of husband would he be? Friends, when there is a undying, burning passion in you for Messiah, you begin to find victory over sin. You stop taking lightly what He's done for you. You start thinking in terms of what you can do for Him. You start taking that seriously. And it produces victory. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. By the way, I skip verse 7. Anyone who has died has been freed from sin. To die on the cross with Jesus is to free you from the sin you were struggling with. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Now we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. This is a Greek word. Logizome. <coughs> it means to calculate in your mind. To add it up. It means to remember it means to keep a record of the facts. You lajizome your books each month. You add them up. You reckon them. You balance them. These people used to balance them. Now they just check their online account. Right? We are supposed to take a reckoning of our lives and count ourselves dead to sin. Well, what does that mean? Just like, mm, you're dead. No, it means to take that thing and put it in union with Messiah. Yeah. It means to nail it to a tree. Watch it die. And then let it perish in your life through neglect. That's right. Let it starve to death. <laughs> let it go away because you give it no attention. In your mind you have marked it off on your books as dead. Yeah. Amen. This is what it means to have victory over sin. You know what is not victory? I'm sorry Jesus, give me your grace. But you make no practical steps to get free. I got a phone call from a man, a man that I love, a man that I think is a powerful, amazing Christian. He's traveled in sin in his hotel room by watching something that he should not watch. I gave him this very same message. He's given it to me before too. Because I love you. I said, you know what? All of this is very good. And you need to know it. And it needs to be in you. You know what else you need to do? He said, what? He said, when you walk into a hotel room, unplug the TV set. Now, that might not be something that Judah has to do. Uh, Judah might be free to watch as much TV as he wants. Maybe JJ is. But not my buddy who called. He need, and if that's not enough, then he needs to put that thing up and go put it at the other end of the hallway. And spend the night in prayer. He needs to do whatever it takes because Messiah is worth it. That's right. See, the cross is neither about the elimination of your diligence, nor is it about the dependence on your diligence. It depends upon Messiah's miraculous work 
before you handing you a victory. But that miraculous work comes as you are diligent to drag the nastiness to Him. It's like a little kid saying, Daddy, I've got a sore again. I've got a bow bow. I need your help because I don't like them. I don't want them. To me, it's a bow bow, not a trophy. A bow bow. You hear me? You're saying it's not a trophy. It's a bow bow. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign. <laughs> do not let it reign. Amen. He says, don't let it reign. Yeah. Who's he talking to? The laws. <laughs> what does this tell you? King James says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Dominion is a kingdom. You're not going to build, you're not going to live in the house sin is building for you. Don't do it. Don't make it a lifestyle. Don't live in it. Well, how much could I do in it not be a lifestyle? If that is your thought, you need to go lay your head on the railroad tracks right now because you're already dead. You've already perverted God's grace into a license for your immorality and you're already dead. Repent. Turn around. You're just as dead as if somebody ran you over. Do not let it rain. You know what that means? It means you have a choice. Yes. It means you have a choice. You do not in yourself have what it takes to win. But you do have a choice to tap into that which has given you victory. You have a choice. Amen. You are no longer a slave to sin. Right. You're a slave to righteousness. Amen. Adam and Eve didn't know they had a choice after they ate. It dominated them. And sin reigned and increased. Cain didn't know <laughs> He had a choice. Actually, they might have known, but they didn't know like you know. We do not have to sin. It should be a battle, and you should win it, because the Lord is who is giving you victory. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God every moment that you have a wicked desire. As one brother in our church said, stop, drop, and pray. <laughs> stop, drop, and pray. You don't understand that hasn't been enough. Then go jog. You don't understand that's not enough. Then go surround yourself with people. Go lock yourself in a car. I don't care what you do. Win. Well, Eric, you're saying it depends on my will. No, we started explaining that it doesn't. But are you honestly telling me that if you're asking Jesus for victory, if you're asking Him for help in that moment that He's going, no, I'd rather watch you struggle? Yeah. No. I don't believe it. I do not believe it. I don't think the problem is with His ability to deliver to you what you need. I think the problem is our ability to connect with Him. James says when your own evil desires entice you and drag you away and cause you to sin. And then... Sin becomes mature, giving birth to death. That's right. that, he describes it as a process. Now, are there moments you could hit your finger with a hammer and the process is greatly condensed? Sure. Is this really what's habitual in your life, though? Probably not. Or you'd be digitless. You know, it's an amazing thing. If a lightning bolt hits you every time you sin, you'd stop sinning. <laughs> So we have to be honest. What we said of the grace of God, the removement of penalty, which is true, 
has actually worked to our detriment. Because when you have no penalty, you forget quickly, don't you? He's in our house, but is he in our closets? Is he in our attic? Is he in our garage? Amen, every part of you. Every part of you. You know, if Samson had been struck dead the first time he touched a grape or was in a vineyard, he never would have fallen asleep in Delilah's lap. Sin always grows in a life. It always grows. That's why you have to root it out wherever it is. I want to tell you the church is asleep in Delilah's lap right now. The presence of God has left the average place and they don't even know it anymore. And it's because sin has been allowed to grow. It's been allowed to be fostered. What then shall we say? Verse 15. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Paul, the law. Do you not know that when you offer someone, yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is supposed to be the state of a believer. Now I want to tell you, this is not a one-time action. You are not free from all sin in a moment. In a moment, you experience something that is born again. You experience His power, an unmerited victory. You begin to be free from sin. But the more you walk with Him and the more His light shines upon you, the more areas you find out are outside of His will and you didn't even know it. And with each one of them, you have to drag them to the cross each day and say, Lord, I want to die to this and it to me. Let us nail it to the cross together that we might come out of that grave that's trying to put me in in a resurrected, powerful life. Salvation is not something that just happened to you on some date in the past. It is something that is happening to you every day because death and sin are knocking at your door every day. One group says, no, you never know that you're saved. It's always just um, kind of out there up in the air. Another group says, no, you're saved and sealed and it can never change. And they're both acting like children. You were saved. You are saved. And you will be saved. It is an instant in time where it's credited to you, but it is also a process that you're walking in your whole life. That's right. And hear this. It's voluntary. He does not make you. His hand is not a prison. He is not squeezing you in His arms saying you cannot step out of it if you want to open your eyes and look around you. It is warfare. He's saying stay in the center of my hand and nobody will take you from me. What is that? Fully satisfied is to find yourself fully in Him. Fully satisfied is to know that whatever your problem, if you lay it before Him, you'll receive victory that you could never earn on your own. It's like you tried to bench press 700 pounds and you only had a 100 pound body. There is no hope from the oppression the crushing power that is upon you is trying to stop your heart from beating. But you've now gotten it to Jesus. And He goes, oh, is that a problem for you? It is an unmerited victory. And it comes from being in union 
with Him. Proverbs 13.4 was where we started. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. I want you to be satisfied, but it will not come through craving. It will come through diligently going to the cross. Look at Proverbs 13.6 with me. I know your rear ends feel like you should be done because it's nearing 12 o'clock. Good thing that your rear end doesn't rule your cup. Deny your rear. Deny your rear. I like that. I've been denying mine a long time. <laughs> Proverbs 13.6 Righteousness guards the man of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Righteousness guards the man of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Righteousness guards you because even when no one is around you, which is what integrity is, you're going to the cross so that you cannot be overthrown. Overthrown literally means to topple. It means to twist. It means to make wicked. It means to pervert something that is normally good. Overthrown is a term that in Job 12, it literally speaks of governmental systems that are being overthrown. I want you to understand that the devil's desire is to overthrow your faith, to twist it, to pervert it, to topple the governmental system in your life where he is Lord and you are the follower. He's trying to introduce into it a contaminant that says you don't have to do everything that he says and he'll still be your Lord. This would overthrow your faith because he is no longer your Lord. We visit the cross daily. And in our private life, integrity is what you do when no one is looking. Righteousness is protecting you. Because even when nobody is around you, you are running to the feet of the cross saying, if you deliver me, I will be delivered. I found one more area, Jesus. I found one more thing where my flesh is trying to be my God and I say no! This is what it is to be guarded. This is what it is to refuse to be overthrown. But it's not just a matter that is integrity, what you do when no one is looking. God has not left you alone. In the American church, we often don't know and don't practice these things. We don't know what the cross really is. We don't know what the power of God really is. We've been baptized in a form of godliness and we have never known its true power so that our kids grow up saying they're saved because they were in youth group, but they lived like hell all the way to the heaven that they're supposed to be headed for. Come on. Anybody in here ever been in a youth group, participated in a youth group, led a youth group that was about the entertainment of the people because if you tried to disciple them, it made their parents mad because their parents weren't saved. There's a youth pastor that sneaks out of his town and comes here all of the time. I love him. He got filled with the Holy Ghost here. His wife got filled with the Holy Ghost there. His here. His biggest problem is that when He teaches what is right, when He pries, when He pushes, when He talks about the Gospel in its true form, the parents get upset because the kids go, what What about you, Mom? What about you, Dad? I saw what was on your Facebook page. Yeah, that conversation ought to go the other way. Our King did not want you to be unfathered. He didn't. 
He didn't want you to be in a state where there were no mentors. Nobody to lay a foundation that says, Son, this is how you deal with that. He did not want you to be unfathered. He did not want you to be uncorrected. He didn't want you to be in a position where nobody could see into you. Where you gave no one the right to hold you accountable. He did not want you to be in a position that says, I'm a God and an island to myself. He wanted you to have a mentor who would show you the right way to deal with things. He wanted you to have in your life someone to bring correction. He did not want you to be unfruitful. Never spreading the Word. Never multiplying. Never having offspring. Isn't it a funny thing? You see people who are 18, 20 years old. They're married, right? They're still buying two-door sports cars. They haven't hit the, the minivan stage yet. <laughs> The things that they're interested in are still about fun and risk and daring. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. But throw three kids in the back of their car and what starts to happen? Well, you start to buy vehicles that are not about as fast as you can drive. They're about making sure you've got this protective cocoon around your babies. Your lives are no longer about how you look. It's about how you raise them, right? Your identity is being poured into them so you care. You know what's wrong with Christians that have no offspring spiritually? Christians that are not fruitful, not multiplying? There's nobody out there that you're worried about letting down. I got to tell you, when I got married, that was one step. I didn't just have to trust Jesus for me. I had to trust Jesus for her provision too. Then when I got used to that level of the walk and I was excited about it and starting to walk in it, Along comes Judah, about four years into marriage. I think, Lord, we could fast if we have to. We can do without if we have to. He can't go a couple hours without eating. There have been times where because of something we felt like the Lord told us to do, those things were put at risk in our lives. But now I was having to listen to Him even if it put it at risk in His life. Then along came Gabriel. Then along came Abigail. Then along came Brandon and Cody. <laughs> God is good. He did not want you to be unfathered. He did not want you to be uncorrected. And He did not want you to be unfruitful. He did not want you to be unheeded, saints. I've got to tell you, a, a recurring phenomenon is here. As people show up, and what do you do when you're new in the church? What do you do anytime you're in church, right? You want to show your best side. As soon as the pastor begins to see beyond the brightly lit lapel and look a little deeper inside you, all of a sudden that's not the neatest church you've ever been to. That's not just the coolest place you've ever been. It's, uh, in fact, you know, they're preaching the right word, but the way they preach it, I mean, and, you know, their children's church is really lacking. And, all. and there begins to be a fault-finding spirit. And the reason for it is because you don't really want intimacy. You don't want us to see into you. Because you feel fine just the way you are. If you feel fine just the way you are, then what is the purpose of our meetings? What is the purpose of a community of believers if you're fine just like you are? All of the gospel advances by humbling yourself and go, Okay. I'm not sure where all the areas were. I would have already fixed them. But wherever you see something in me, please point it out. I want to be healed. I had a meeting with the Hutchinson family and I was so apprehensive about it. I had lots of meetings with people that 
when they show up with a notebook and a pen and the list is already formed, it's usually, here's the way you suck as a pastor. I know we don't say that, but I just Here are all your deficiencies. Mike had watched our ministry for a while. He prayed with his family. He said, here are 17 ways we feel like your ministry might benefit our lives. He said, would you take the time to help me in these areas? It's an amazing thing what God does with people who can be introspective. Mm -hmm. They get healed 100%. Yeah. Amen. Our God did not want us to be untaught. There's this attitude that we hate in our teenagers, but we possess ourselves. We already know everything. <laughs> we never say thank you. You know, it's always, oh, I know. Because we're scared to death somebody might find something we don't know. <clears throat> Do you know about the mystery of the God? Uh huh. <laughs> but somehow or another, in all that knowledge, you're not living it. Oh. Well, let's see. I can see the steeple of the other building from here. I bet they won't call it out. You're right. They probably won't. Why are you here? Our job is to, the suitable word that we hope to speak to you is one that will challenge you, cause you to grow the same way the Holy Ghost does us. By the way, if we're unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, and untaught, five things that we are, the cure for it might be God's five-fold ministry. Ephesians 4, the first chapter says that you might live a life worthy of the calling. And then it goes on somewhere around the 11th verse to say, first of all, I've appointed... Apostles, then prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, teachers. He lists five folds of ministry. And he says they are to prepare God's people for works of service, causing them to grow into maturity until we have all reached a unity in the faith and in the fullness of the Son of God. Where are they? Where are the apostles? Where are the prophets? Where are the pastors and teachers? Where are the evangelists anymore? Our goal is to raise them up in this group. And I have time to teach on the fivefold ministry. But it's necessary that an apostle be able to touch every office because it's his job to raise the other offices up. But by the way, if you have an apostle figure, you have a mentor in your life. Someone who is laying down the foundations of the Word of God for you. Saying, son, this is how you beat pornography. Woman, this is how you beat emotional pornography. This is how you free yourself of the life you could have had. And start living the life God has given you. That's good. This is how you take your emotions, my child. And you make them serve you. Rather than you living as a slave to your emotions. These are the works of an apostle that teach you about the Word of God. And they raise up a church and then go raise up another church. This is not church planting as the church has made it. Where you see where the demographics are right. You wait till there's a board structure in place and a certain number of dollars and you call it a church because there's a building with a steeple. Raising up a church means raising up people who occupy all of these offices. Raising up a church means a healthy spiritual organization that may or may not even have financial practices. If you're uncorrected, 
Maybe the answer is to have a prophet in your life. Somebody that sees beyond just what you're spewing at them. By the way, the last time somebody said, Hey, how you doing? When is the last time you told them the truth? Oh, I'm fine. Really? Because I just heard your granddaughter had an abortion. Your husband died in a car accident. But you're fine. Really? See, we, we, we present what we want. And what we want is to be left alone. We want no action. So God will put people in your life that will call you to an account. They might prophesy to you in a group. They might pull you up in a lie. Or they might just call you on the telephone. Yeah. So you said you're doing great, but somehow in my spirit it doesn't feel like you're doing great. Tell me the truth. What do you do with people that pry into your lives like that? Do you push them at a distance? Because if you receive a prophet, you get a prophet's reward, the scripture says. Most people can't. You know what historically has happened to the prophets? They were sold in two. They were thrown in pits. They went about vagabonds. Aliens and strangers. The world was not worthy. What do you do with them? If you're unfruitful, maybe you need to spend some time walking with an evangelist. Now, an evangelist is not the guy in the 70s that drives a big white car. <coughs> Pulls up and <coughs> like Boss Hall. <laughs> the evangelist is the one that is seeing the kingdom multiply all around him. He's the one that everywhere he goes, he can't help but spread the gospel. And you're seeing it grow in people's lives. That's an evangelist. An evangelist is not a master of a 30-second prayer. That is ridiculous hogwash. You know what that is? That's Bible says. That's just somebody says, for every dollar you send me, I'll give you a soul. 10,000 were saying yesterday. Ask them. Ask them every time. Can you name five of them? Can you name the people? Don't tell me that you know they're born again and in God's kingdom and you don't know their name. I don't believe it. That's not evangelism. I've never seen... Actually, we went to a school where we had that kind of evangelism. There was a spiritual emphasis week. And 900 students came to the altar on Friday morning. Friday night, the same ones were in the same back seats of the same cars. This mass salvation is garbage. Anybody that has ever worked in the ministry of the so-called evangelist will tell you you go back to the same towns a year later and the 10,000 people that got saved are nowhere to be found. Real evangelism is when you are seeing a life change for the glory of God. And you're seeing it change. Not a 30-second decision. If you're unhealed, friends, embrace the pastoral ministry. If you have hurts in your life that you've never dealt with, that have never been dealt with, let your pastor show you how to take them to the cross. This is the role of a pastor. He is not a paid orator. He's not there to make you feel better about yourselves. You're just a champion, you know. It's absurd. It is absurd. But people are drawn to it. And why? Why are we drawn to it? Because it doesn't see into us. It doesn't pierce us. It doesn't require change. It allows us to sit on our salvation and be entertained. It's easy. It's easy. It's sloppy agape. Greasy grace is what it is. By the way, I'm not naming names of ministries up here for a reason. I'm not any better than any other ministry. Neither is Matthew. Neither is Steve. The other men that run this, this church by the grace of God. 
What we are doing is we're describing practices. And if you make the association, then praise God, you're smarter than the average bear. But I'm not making them for you. You understand what I'm telling you? If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, you might need to consider that it's a duck. Okay? But it's not my job to point that out. It's my job to teach truth and let you draw conclusions. If you are untaught, if you already know everything, then you need to ask yourselves, what is the point of my life? And are there 70 disciples beneath me? Are there 12 disciples beneath me? Since God has invested in me the embodiment of all knowledge, what was I supposed to do with it? Oh, He called me to a church. Maybe there are still some things that I have left to learn. And the things that I do know, well, maybe I'm supposed to share them with them. In that way, we all might grow together. You need a teacher in your life, friends. You need a teacher. I don't care how old you are. You need a teacher in your life. Yes. Yeah, do I need to say that again? It doesn't matter how old you are. You need a teacher in your life. It's a funny thing. No matter what my age has been, there's always been somebody that's older and goes, you know, I don't know. You're only... Okay, well, Jesus was three years younger than me and He provided salvation for the whole world. Are we good yet? And you know what they told Him? You're not 50 yet. If He was 50, would they have listened to Him? Don't pick on the messenger because you don't like the message. Amen? That's immaturity of the highest order. I believe that to be guarded and not overthrown... We need integrity, going to the cross in our private lives, but we also need to surround ourselves with the structure of God's church that He designed. Yes. And if you don't have it in the church that you're in, you have two options, run or build. Run or build are your only two options. And either God has called you there to build, or He never called you there and you need to run. Okay. But this is what church life looks like. Church life looks like apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. It looks like that in the Bible, and it should look like that in our churches. Don't settle for less. Turn with me to Proverbs 13, 7. There. We've gone way over, huh? The Board of Deacons is going to be upset with me. How do we know? Oh, that's right. We don't have a Board of Deacons. This isn't way over. You've got a ways to go yet. Okay. Today you're my favorite student. <laughs> Proverbs 13.7 One man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another man pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Romans 6.6 6 says we are no longer slaves. What is your freedom worth? How rich are you if everything in your life is under God's control and therefore is not mastering you? How many people do you know that are rich by this world's standards but are beat to death by their obligations? They are beat to death by the stresses of maintaining their wealth. And if they have no debts, then they're worried about who wants their wealth. They spend their lives trying to control other people with their wealth. If you do what I tell you to do, Natalie, you one day can have all this. Take a close look at their lives and see if you would want it anyway. <coughs> You know what it is? I'd rather the whole world assume me poor. And yet I'd be wealthy because nothing was mastering me except Jesus. I want you to be wealthy. I want to talk to you about some ways to get wealthy. 
Y'all already know how I feel about prosperity. It's scary for me to even say ways I want you to be wealthy. Because the world is so corrupt and their thinking so tainted and the worldly preachers are that when you say wealth, they think money. It's funny. I watched Katrina wash away a whole city. People did not go back to get their cash under the mattresses. They went back to save their loved ones' lives. They went back to get pictures that reminded them of certain events. I didn't see anybody with suitcases of cash. Can't set the senator put it in the treasury. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Louisiana and every other prep state. <laughs> what makes a man wealthy? I'll tell you what makes you wealthy. In Jesus, you possess everything as long as he possesses all of you. What do you need? The Proverbs actually say, Proverbs 10, must be 22, but you'll have to look for yourselves. Watch this. Is it not written in Proverbs 10? <laughs> Righteousness brings wealth and adds no sorrow to it. For godliness brings wealth and adds no sorrow to it. We're talking about a kind of wealth that makes you rich in every way that counts. Makes you prettier than you would be without it. Makes you happier than you would be without it. Makes you uh, have what you need in every situation. Makes you be content with God and man and all that's around you and have a purpose in your life. I promise the rich people by this world standards would not have five wives if they knew what it was to be content with what God had given them and be put on the earth for a purpose other than selfishness. Yeah. They wouldn't. Right. They're looking and fighting for something that will make them happy. And they're disappointed because they've gathered more than most and they're still not happy. The kind of wealth we're talking about comes from being diligent and going to the cross. Guarding your life so that you cannot be overthrown. And here's what it looks like. I'm going to give you some things to write in your notes. There will be six things to write in your notes. Six numbers, one through six. Number one, this is how you can become wealthy. The cross has brought you into contact with Jesus' brow. His brow is in this part of your head. Listen carefully. This is Luke 22, 44. In being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Gethsemane, Jesus took your cares, worries, anxieties upon himself so that you could have shalom with God. Telling you, church, reconnect your lives with his bride so that he might have peace again. His brow will bring you peace. Union with Messiah's work. Number two, his back. His back will bring you healing. John 19.1 Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Isaiah looking 740 years into the future. And Isaiah 52, 14 said his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus faced the Roman lictor and was wounded to the point of disfiguring him so that you could be healed or whole. First <coughs> Peter 2, 24 says, By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25 says, You were like sheep going astray. 
but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus faced agony so that you could be healed in every dimension of your life. His back will bring you healing. Number three, His hands. In His hands we find forgiveness. Colossians 2, verse 14. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Every Christian should look at every difficult circumstance from the perspective of the cross. In the ancient world, to put your foot, I'm sorry, in the ancient world, to have your debts nailed to the front door of your house and folded over meant that they were paid. In John 20, 25, one disciple said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into a side, I will not believe it. If Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross so that your debts, promissory notes, and arrest warrants could be canceled. Maybe right now you can close your eyes, reach out your hand, and put your fingers in the holes. What is it to be rich? You have no debts? In Jesus' feet, in the fold, we find victory. His feet were pierced. Colossians 2, again, says He forgave all of our sins because they were nailed to the tree. Every Christian knows what it is to have someone else say, come here and put your feet on the neck of the enemy. Like Joshua 10, 24. Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. By Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, He has put your weakness, fear, <coughs> defeat under His feet. Your victory is in putting your feet where Jesus' feet are. Number five, his head. Jesus' head brings you blessings. Matthew 27, 29. And then twisted together, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. The thorn is first mentioned in Genesis 3.18. It's very much a part of the curses that came upon the world. <clears throat> Jesus was crowned with your curse of pain, suffering, and poverty that entered the world through Adam's sin. He was crowned with thorns so that the curse could be removed. And as Paul said in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all of my needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. His head is what brings you blessings. The last one is His side. 
Remember that stabbed him in the side and blood and water flowed? In John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The piercing of Jesus' heart represents the breaking of the heart. The inner wounds and the heartbreak of my experiences are released in Jesus as I embrace him at the cross. Jesus' side will bring you healing. Friends, every day we have an obligation to come to the cross, to walk away from it healed and whole. If you cannot think about these things any other way, then think about them as the very anatomy of Jesus. It is because He came as the deliverer in the flesh. And every part of His flesh represents some part of your healing. To be at peace physically, to be healed, to be forgiven and victory blessed, and emotionally healed only comes one way. It comes from the wealth that you get, having your flesh crucified with Christ. Yes. When you get up from this cross each day, you need to go to be mentored by an apostle figure. You need to ask to be corrected by a prophet figure. You need to learn to multiply through discipleship and evangelism so that you'll have some skin in this game. An ongoing healing from the events of continued life, you need to live under the guidance of a pastor. You need to get taught and personally take responsibility for learning the whole Word of God in private time and also through a teacher. This is what it is to diligently go to the cross and be fully satisfied. Is there a person in here that would trade those things for a billion dollars? No. Then it's not Bill Gates we need to envy, is it? Everything that you need, every victory that you have not found, is waiting for you at the cross. So Eric, what about the resurrection? You don't have a resurrection without a cross. The resurrection comes the moment after the cross. We have not experienced the life of God because we have not experienced the death of the Son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stand to your feet. safe to say that we have outgrown our great-grandparents' religion? If it's not, is it safe to say that we have outgrown the religion of the Reformers? At some point, saints, we have to reach beyond that which we were spoon-fed and get to the place where we're being fed what we really need. It is no commentary upon the men that went before us. John Wesley got what he needed and he found it at the cross. Martin Luther got what he needed and he found it at the cross. William Seymour got what he needed and he found it at the cross. William Booth got what he needed found it at the cross. The question is not did what they do work for them? The question is is it working for you? 
believe as you personally experience the depth of what Jesus has done for you and connect with it in a real way, you'd be the wealthiest, most unshakable, fully satisfied person on the planet, and everyone will envy you to the point that people are asking, what can I do to be in right standing with God like you? This is not the domain of the fivefold ministry. It's the domain of the average believer. Average. Anybody here want to be C students? No. no. Then let's go the whole way. Let's embrace him with all of you. Amen. 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 We're going to pray. There's a ladies' meeting today. If you've got nowhere to go during the ladies' meeting, my house is open. I have no idea what we'll do. That'll depend upon you. <laughs> fellowship with each other. Get victory. Encourage each other. Don't throw stones at each other. Our sword is for the enemy, not for each other. Daddy did give you a sword, but it was not for your brothers. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank You. We thank You for laying out there everything we could have ever needed. Lord, corporately we repent for not embracing You. We repent, Lord God, for learning to live with sin rather than dying to it. We repent, mighty God, for going our own way and calling it godliness. Lord, we ask for Your regenerating work. We ask for Your infilling of Your Spirit. Lord God, as we look at our flesh nailed to the cross. It is nasty and it is bloody. But we thank you. Because we've not given up anything. You took it all. Though we're asking that in exchange for our ashes, you would give us something beautiful. Though that you would give us a victory that we can walk in that we could have never earned ourselves. Lord, let us walk in your resurrected life. Let us walk in your power and teach others to do the same. In the name of Yeshua's bloody atonement, in the name of his crucifixion, his public execution, we pledge that we will take up our cross. We will deny our flesh. And we will follow Him. Our deeds will show the sincerity of our action, of our words here. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.